I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Democratic political strategist Emily Tush Sussman. She's a correspondent on MSNBC and CNN, and she's also the host of the popular political podcast, Your Primary Playlist. She actually interviewed Hillary Clinton last week, and I'm totally jealous. Anyway, Emily joined me for a quick state of the race analysis, including a post-debate analysis of the first Democratic debate following the Iowa caucus. You know the Iowa caucus, the chaotic one with the surprising and ever-changing results? Yes, that Iowa caucus. We also talk about Tuesday's New Hampshire primary and what's going to happen beyond that. So here is my conversation with Emily Tish Sussman. Emily Tish Sussman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I just realized yesterday that we're entering the second week of February. It's very new and I need a vacation. I need my summer vacation like yesterday (laughs) because I was thinking through last week, you know, Monday was the caucus, the Iowa caucus, which was, you know, chaotic to say the least. Following that, I think Tuesday was the wildest State of the Union I've ever witnessed in my entire life. Then Wednesday, I think, was the acquittal. Thursday, we had a bit of a break. And then Friday, I think, was the 10th Democratic debate. Was it the 10th or the 11th? Yeah, something (laughs) around that. I mean, I am extremely (laughs) pregnant right now. And like the joke that this thing could force me into labor, like shock me into labor, like stopped being funny this week because there were so many things. Although the thing that ultimately ended up doing it was when I was worried that Jerry Harris wasn't going to make the mat and cheer. That was the ultimate. Well, you made it. You made it, especially through the caucus. So what was your take? What's your take on the Iowa caucus from last week and the state that we're in right now? Because honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm still a bit confused. It is crazy. I mean, I've been saying I was at I was at in Iowa for the caucus in 2016 and was truly shocked by the process and the fact that I felt like so many people got left out because they didn't just they couldn't have the time or the transportation to be able to show up and participate in it. Um, and then last week, one of the things that almost shocked me into labor is that I interviewed Hillary Clinton <laughs> and she said the process was undemocratic, which is actually the farthest I've ever heard anybody go in describing it. And I think that now everybody pretty much feels that way. Like one of the things that I worry about in the long term, as if November is the long term, although when weeks are as long as last week, November can feel like long term. But (laughs) one of the things that I worry about is that even if Trump is loses the Electoral College, loses the election, he won't step down and he'll question the results of the election. And I don't think that that the results of the Iowa caucus, if we even have results right now, which I guess we finally do, and Democratic candidates questioning the results of it, I don't think it helps set a precedent for us to be able to have a peaceful transfer of power if there should be one in November. No, because you're exactly right. Because immediately once the news started to come out about the Iowa caucus, he jumped on Twitter (laughs) to cast doubt on the whole process. Do, Do you remember that tweet? He said something like, Oh, you know, Democrats are in disarray or something. You know, the Iowa caucus is a mess. And he's already casting doubt on the process, probably looking forward to what's going to happen in November. Exactly. It's a way to be able to 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 sow doubt from the beginning so that he can essentially control the outcome. Because if he controls the entire frame of the narrative, which is something he's very good at doing, then he can everybody reacts to it. So we're no longer just starting from um, creating our own framework of like what 
would normally be considered truth. We're only reacting back and forth to what he says. Right. And you know, I'm glad you said that because I've been thinking about that too. And I kind of mention that every now and again, but I feel kind of like a conspiratorialist when I talk about the fact that he may not step down. He's been hinting at this. Like he tweets out Trump 2024, Trump 2028, Trump, you know, 2032. I mean, he won't be alive that long. But I mean, but there's always a vodka. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But anyway, so, you know, it's 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 actually a possibility that we would have to struggle to get him out of office, even if he did lose the Electoral College in November. I mean, it's something that seems totally crazy, but these are crazy times and we are not dealing with somebody who is truly grounded in reality when you are only driven by by your own narcissism and and apparently the rules don't apply i feel like everything's on the table i think that one of the biggest impacts of his presidency is that we don't know how to follow up with questions so we see we've seen this time and time again although now there's no longer white house briefings but but it started from day one you know right from the beginning with sean spicer talking about the crowd size of the inauguration that journalists would say well that's wrong here's the evidence And whether it's the president or the surrogates would say, well, no, I'm just sticking to my point. How many times can a journalist follow up and say, you're factually incorrect, it's right in front of you? before they have to just move on. Right, exactly. I mean, to try to follow up on the the lies in that State of the Union address, I mean, like Nancy Pelosi, the only reaction she could have was just to tear it up. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) And let me tell you why I actually think that was so brilliant is because the next day, the only conversation was about Nancy Pelosi tearing it up. Trump ended up tweeting more about Pelosi tearing up the speech than the content of his own speech. Yeah, but so so the Iowa caucus, you know, I I think that we have the results, although I I did see something this morning that said that um, Sanders, Bernie Sanders, was asking for a partial recanvassing of I- Iowa. And I'm not really sure what that process is. But I guess just in short, I don't think that this completely closed. And honestly, I mean, I don't want to sound like Trump. I'm, I'm not sure how much we can even trust the actual numbers. I'm just not sure. I mean, how much should I trust that? I mean, at this point, what they have are they're going back to the paper recordings of, you know, tallying up, counting who was in the room, counting who moved. Um, I mean, they're, they're, they're combing back through it. I think the thing that has been frustrating to me about the coverage of Iowa is that it's not winner take all. So who quote wins actually doesn't really matter that much. It's how many delegates you get out of it. The, the reason we care about who wins is because they get a lot of momentum out of it. They, they are now seen as electable. They can, you know, bank on fundraising, on momentum, all of that. But that was essentially all negated because of the disaster of the function of the caucus. Um, so the fact that he and Buttigieg are neck and neck within one delegate, in the grand scheme of things, one delegate is likely not going to make the biggest difference. It feels like they should just move on to the next contest. You know, practically, it doesn't make a difference, but you're right. It does make a difference in terms of momentum. And I think that Buttigieg has probably benefited the most from being that close to Sanders, right? I think that the final count was Buttigieg was one delegate ahead of Sanders. So, So essentially, you know, you could say, claim that he's the winner, the winner of the Iowa caucus, which, you know, as far as like optics are concerned, that's really good for him and not the best for Sanders, given 
given, like if you look at the entire context of the primary, the news that's following Bernie Sanders this week, right? Um, you know, he had an interview with Chuck Todd where he talked about, you know, he decided that he wasn't going to release his medical records, right? And then James Carville did an interview where he also kind of questioned, you know, whether it was a smart move for America to select Bernie Sanders as their nominee, Right. I mean, so I think that Bernie Sanders needed that push more than Buttigieg at this moment. Well, yes. And I mean, I think they both I think they both benefited from it a lot because Sanders entire argument has been I am electable because I will turn out new voters. I will expand the electorate. I will bring out people who don't normally vote. And because the turnout is actually less than 2008 and a little bit above where it was in 2016, that argument looks like it fell a little bit flat. That may not be true. It wasn't like there was this surge of new people coming in. Buttigieg, I think, benefits from it. I actually think they both benefit equally. I don't think it really matters who at this point is named like the quote winner, because I think the whole thing just looks like a mess, to be honest with you. And I think it's why people care about New Hampshire so much. But I think that the reason that that Buttigieg got a big bump from it is really the Buttigieg Biden narrative that it's it's such a huge contrast where Biden's main argument was electability um, and the fact that Buttigieg performed so much better than Biden defying um Define where people thought that he would have been, even in the last couple of polls before that, it seemed like he had fallen maybe to third or fourth. So the fact that he did so much better, I think, was the big exciting narrative for him. You know, reporters don't really want to report on something that if it seems like it's supposed to happen and it happens, like not that exciting. But if it seems like it's not supposed to happen, (laughs) (laughs) then it's amazing. I mean, I, I think unfortunately the candidate that really got erased in all of this is the fact that Warren came in third. She is in this race. She came in third. She will probably come in first or second in New Hampshire. So let's talk about her that way. Yeah, you know, she was kind of erased by the media after that, right? It was the Sanders and the Buttigieg fight that really took over the headlines. So, you know, the thing about Buttigieg, I was really surprised in the Iowa caucus that he did come out as well as he did, because I don't think any of the polls indicated that. And you're right, that was the really that was the really big story. So following that. Last week, I think it was an interview. I'm not really sure if it was on MSNBC or if it was just kind of an impromptu interview with with Biden. He made an assertion that it was not smart for and and it makes sense that they would all make this assertion. But generally, it was not smart to give Sanders or Buttigieg the nomination because I think he said Sanders was too far left and Buttigieg was just too young. And in the debate, in Friday's debate, that was the very first question that was that was given to Biden. And he kind of backed away from that. He didn't answer in the same way he answered on the campaign trail. Do you remember that moment? Yeah. Even though Biden was also releasing like a very serious like the most serious attack ad basically we've seen this cycle the yeah. one on Buttigieg yeah <laughs> yeah that that that's how, what do you think about that I thought it was actually pretty clever and funny but I don't know well generally on a campaign you want your principal so you want the person who's running at the top of the ticket president senator member of congress you want them to stay positive and you want them to stay on themselves because pe- that's generally what people want to see from them and you let your surrogates so the other people around the campaign do the attacking for you you generally don't want your candidate's hands dirtied by actually doing the attacking themselves. I actually have been a little bit surprised in the last week how much the candidates are willing to go negative on one another, particularly on Buttigieg, 
although I'm not surprised it is him in particular, but just that's where the attacks have been going. Um, I mean, I guess they're trying to draw contrast and they feel like it's time to draw contrast. I've been surprised by how much they've been willing to name him as opposed to pivoting back to their own message of supporting their own candidacy. You know, Biden did it both through the video. Sanders did it in a press conference last week where he just continued to repeat Buttigieg's name over and over. Um, I've actually been talking with people who are on the ground in New Hampshire right now to understand if the canvassing, the field, so the volunteers that go door to door and actually speak to voters, if they've seen an adjustment in the scripts that they're supposed to be using um, to have more of a contrast. And they say they haven't really. They say that the the um, the messages have focused more towards electability than they had before, but that they're still staying very positive on the candidates and not not switching towards contrast. I was interested to know if it had sort of trickled down to the field as well, but it seems like it hasn't. That's a really good question. You know, what I've noticed also with a Biden ad last week, and in case anyone's listening and they haven't seen that ad, basically Biden makes a contrast between his career as vice president and Buttigieg's career as mayor of South Bend. And he basically kind of downplays, you know, and makes light of Buttigieg's accomplishments as a mayor. And it's, you know, it's funny, right? It's a funny ad. Um, So anyway, what I noticed was especially in the debate, was that early on in the primary, Biden did focus primarily on Trump in his debate points, right? He focused on, you know, this is a contrast between the Democrats and Trump, right? And the other candidates were kind of attacking each other. And I think it's because all of the national polls showed that, you know, Biden had a huge, huge lead. But, you know, after Iowa, I think that, you know, that's kind of pushing him to go on the attack with the other with the other candidates. Yeah, they definitely are looking for a change in strategy for him to do to do better. I think the thing that's this is I'm not the first person to make this criticism by by any stretch of the imagination. But the thing that is a little bit unfortunate about having Iowa and New Hampshire be the first two states and set the narrative is that they are very, very white states. And that is really not representative of the country as a whole or even of the Democratic Party as a whole. So it's unfortunate to, sh- to say that Biden, who does exceptionally well with voters of color, he is really the, the far first choice to kind of count him out so early. And actually, Elizabeth Warren also does well with a lot of voters of color. Um, and you know, to, to kind of count them out just because they are not doing as well as expectations in states that are over 90 percent white, um, I think really erases the votes of people of color. Yeah. You know, and that criticism has come out a lot in this primary. Right. Um, and I'm really surprised that Hillary Clinton said the caucus was undemocratic. No, she when I interviewed her last week and we spoke about it um, and she said that the Iowa, that the process of the caucus in general is undemocratic for exactly the reason that I had observed being there, that people are people want to participate in the process, but they can't get off work. It's a Monday evening. It could be hours long. They can't get off work. They don't have transportation. They have child care needs. They have, you know, elder care needs. Um, and so they're not able to participate because they can't commit an undetermined amount of hours. Caucuses have been around forever. I'm not really sure why this is only now coming up and it's being exposed as being undemocratic. I mean, my very first caucus was in 2008 between Obama and Hillary Clinton here in Washington state. We've since gotten rid of the caucus, but I remember thinking like, I never want to do this again. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't. And I just, you know, I live in, in Seattle. It's a very, again, you know, very white city. And I'm a woman, right? I'm a woman of color. I'm a black woman. And I just remember thinking, like, if I were 
not as confident in my positions, this would be really uncomfortable for me, right? You know, just having to make my case in this, you know, big room full of all these people who are very passionate. You know, it's not, I mean, you know, all of the other accessibility issues aside, and, and that's actually a huge issue. You know, the fact that people have to, you know, think about childcare, think about work and, you know, spend entire afternoons and evenings there. It was so obvious even back then, 12 years ago, that it was undemocratic. Absolutely. I mean, to your point, it's uncomfortable. These are also your neighbors. Totally. Like, right? like the caucus is made up of your neighborhood, basically. So you may not want to get that involved. I mean, caucuses have decreased. I believe in 2016, there were about 14 states and now it's down to about three states. But Iowa feels very strongly about about holding on to this tradition. They think there are wonderful aspects where people actually get to have conversations with their neighbors face to face and convince them. And I mean, there were fascinating things that happened on on caucus night just last week. One of my friends was a caucus observer in one precinct where uh, Sanders was unviable, was not viable at the first alignment. So that means they went to the second votes. It meant that all the people who had showed up for Sanders had to then choose another candidate to go to. This happened all over the place um, at different caucuses. But the reason this one was interesting is because uh, there's a media narrative that um, there's still like a, a big Bernie or bust, right? Like people are either for Sanders or they're not. So right. what – so what this caucus observer observed was that the people who were there for Sanders and could not caucus for him had to then choose another candidate. And they did really disperse among all of the candidates. And about half of them went for Buttigieg. Yeah, I, I think I did hear something about that, which is really interesting because, I, I mean, maybe this is my assumption or maybe it's the media assumption. Like you, you said, Bernie or Buss, there's this assumption that, you know, Bernie Sanders voters are Bernie Sanders voters and they're for him. And his policies are kind of secondary. Yeah, it was very interesting. I think it was a good illumination that people are taking the process seriously. Um, they are open. They are, and by, by seriously, I mean that they are very, people are very unified in saying, yes, whoever the candidate is, I will eventually rally and vote for them against Trump, um, which is very different than the media narrative. But I mean, I say all of this to say that like the Iowans take their role very seriously and they like that debate. Um I'd say up until the disaster of the of last week, them eliminating their caucus was really not on the table. I actually interviewed the CEO of the DNC, Seema Nanda, a couple of months ago, and again, posed exactly this question to her. said, look, I found the Iowa caucus to be really problematic and people really could not participate. What are we going to do about it? Like, you know, and it's it's 90% white. Like, is it... Can this not be the process in the future? And she really deferred to Iowa and would not budge on that. I would guess they're having a different conversation today. Right. right. Well, I'm curious. What was her answer? Just the... Uh I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the, the states do set their own schedule. Um, she said that they were, that the DNC this year was giving incentives to states to go later. So it wasn't just like a race to the beginning. So if a state opted to hold their primary or caucus at a later in the process, they would be awarded with more delegates. But that Iowa was not interested in that. They really <laughs> like to go first. But they get a lot of attention and probably probably brings in a lot of revenue. I Hundreds mean, of millions of dollars. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I want to talk about the, the point that you made about African-American support and people of color support. And also Warren has quite a bit of support among black voters. Right. And, you know, her position was completely erased out of Iowa. And I think that has to do with the fact that the media still is primarily made up of men. It is. The people, the vast majority um over 50, I think nearly about 60% of political coverage is either written on or reported on by men, mostly white men, uh, which is just not reflective of who the electorate is. I mean, you know this better than anyone in the conversations that you have, but women were expected to be about 52% of the electorate this presidential cycle. And I believe coming out of Iowa, about 58% of caucus goers were women. So we should be hearing from from on policy analysis from women, which I know that you are doing on your show. I, I commend you for doing that. We should be hearing on political analysis from women because otherwise it relegates women to being a constituency as opposed to being treated like the majority of voters, which we should be. Right. So the 52 percent is that of all of the electorate or just the Democratic electorate? No, that is all of the electorate. That's looking at the way that women really surged and came out and voted in the 2018 midterm elections. Uh, a lot of women had uh, not previously voted in the last in the last election in 2016, um, and many women switched their votes from being either independent or Republican to to Democratic votes. Um, hence, we had the big blue wave in 2018. Uh, but that's the entire electorate. Women actually will be the majority of the electorate this year. So we should talk about them and treat them that way. We should. Actually, I just did a show um, last week, I did a recording last week about how, you know, the, the gains that women are making in state legislatures, right? And the fact that a lot of women after 2016, a lot of Republican women, a lot of conservative women are shifting over to the Democratic Party. Um, Mostly. That's mostly true. Republican women had actually made pretty significant gains um, in higher level positions of power. There were uh, you know, the first Latina governor was a Republican. Um, there are Republican women in the Senate. So there there had been up be- before 2018 higher profile Republican women, I'd say, although there were still more women elected as Democrats on the whole. Um, but there's there's not really a place for women in Trump's Republican Party, not in a really serious way. Uh, so it, it is forcing a lot of women to to choose a different party. Yeah. So so about Warren, I guess the thing I was really surprised about was the fact that she hasn't really been mentioned. And you know, generally looking over the polls for the past six months, you know, she has been up there as one of the front runners. But it just took one race, Iowa, where Buttigieg, you know, took a surprising, you know, first place role, first or second place role to kind of erase her from that narrative. And that's really disappointing. I mean, it's just like that quickly. <laughs> I know her and Klobuchar as well, who really overperformed. I mean, that would be a really all. <laughs> All in- indications would be that Klobuchar is a really interesting story that she started at, you know, basically zero and performed basically as well as Biden, like not that much far farther behind. But I think that I think it's a function of the fact that media is looking towards answering, you know, quote, electability and that women are still not totally seen as electable, which is crazy because Hillary Clinton defeated Donald Trump by three million votes. So obviously a woman is electable. Uh, but also... It also is this like weird media relationship where everyone's trying to write a story that's new and it surprises their editor and it surprises other journalists. And so because Warren kind of maintained where her polling had been the last couple of weeks before, 
it didn't feel like a new story. And so it didn't feel like anything like wildly different to be writing about. So that was unfortunate. And I think Klobuchar has benefited from that because she's kind of been under the radar. So if you'll remember like three months ago or six months ago, everyone was asking Elizabeth Warren about her plans and how she was going to pay for them. And then, you know, she was kind of peppered with all of these questions. And, you know, Klobuchar was kind of like, you know, under the radar, like, oh, you know, she's not going to get the nomination anyway. So we're just going to focus on the other woman who's the front runner. And I think that, you know, there's lots of questions, not lots of questions. Some journalists have started to ask about Klobuchar's background as a prosecutor, similar, similarly to the way they asked about Kamala Harris. And she's benefited from the fact that people weren't really looking at her for most of the primary. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of news outlets didn't even dedicate a full reporter to her campaign because they didn't actually they, they only had so many reporters to assign around and they didn't actually think that she'd be in the race that long. Yeah, but now and I don't know if you've looked at the latest New Hampshire polls for some reason, all of the polls for New Hampshire, they aren't coming out as often as they were, I guess, you know, in December and November. And I'm not really sure why that is. There had been a really long stretch, like a six week stretch from like Thanksgiving into December without polls coming out. Um, and then they all, everything that had been in the field came out basically all at the same time in December, like the middle of December. I can't remember which poll it was, but there's one that was showing that Klobuchar and Warren were tied for New Hampshire. And I'm not sure if that's accurate or not. Yeah, I tend to look less at individual polls and more at trajectory, like more at the aggregate of them. Um you know, maybe there is a, a, a Klobuchar bump from the debate, which I know is what had been postured for to see her bump right now in the most recent polls. Um, I, I tend to look overall at where if they're going up, if they're going down. I mean, the last Iowa polls had Buttigieg, I think, in fourth. So clearly we should not be paying that close attention. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Well, but but I mean, there is some other evidence that that bump could be, you know, long lasting for Klobuchar, because I think after the debate, because I think she had a really strong debate performance on I Friday. Do too. She raised, I think the last time I checked, it was like three million dollars days after the the debate, which is a lot. A lot. That's a lot. No, a lot. Going into this race, there's a lot of things we didn't know what would play out. One of the things that we didn't know was the impact of having so many debates. Um, and it looks like the biggest impact has been the ability to raise money afterwards. And it keeps your candidate in the race, especially for a campaign that doesn't spend a lot of money like Klobuchar. $3 million is a lot of money for a campaign like hers. It can keep her going into, into Nevada, South Carolina, potentially into Super Tuesday. For sure. Right. But she's never really been at the top. So I, I, I'm still doubtful she'll get the nomination. But I think this does put her in a good position to jockey for a VP slot. Yeah, I think there's a very good chance that we go to a brokered convention. And what that means is that uh, there's not going to be a clear front runner going into the convention. And so there's going to be a lot of it'll look like the Iowa caucus, basically, like people on the floor in the convention, um, kind of trading delegates, forming alliances, trying to trying to have one candidate come up with a, a majority of delegates. And then we have a nominee out of that. So if a candidate like a Klobuchar goes in with a handful of delegates, that can matter a lot. She could end up using, you know, saying that, you know, I will deliver my delegates to a candidate um, for VP, for a good cabinet position. It could it could really mean a lot for her. So I have two final questions for you. Maybe the first one you can't answer, but I'm just dying to know what your take is. Why are Steyer and Yang still in the race? <laughs> because they can be. 
<laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, Steyer, you know, they're on stage and, um, and well, we haven't even talked about Bloomberg, why he's not on the debate stage and he's kind of rising in the polls. I mean, that's a whole other episode. Yeah, I can definitely go on and on about Bloomberg. But here's the one thing I will tell you about Steyer is that he is a actually very serious presence in South Carolina. He went oh. heavy on TV. You cannot talk to a person in South Carolina, a voter in South Carolina, without them bringing up Steyer. I don't know if it means he's going to do well, but he is an actual presence in South Carolina. And he wants to be the president. Look at the way everyone's doing it. I mean, candidates don't drop out of the race because they think that it's not fun anymore. They drop out of the race because they run out of money. He's never going to run out of money. He's never going (laughs) to run out of money. But look, it's the same for Yang and the Yang gang, right? Like the Yang gang is funding his campaign. He has enough money to keep going on a pretty cheap campaign. So he stays in. Yeah, but still, it just really bothers me because I just delicate wise, there is no viable path doing so poorly in the first two to three states. Well, right? they're it's, not the only candidates in the race. There are candidates in the race who have only been competing in New Hampshire who didn't even try in Iowa, like Tulsi Gabbard and Michael Bennett. They're still in the race as well. So I guess we'll see what happens after New Hampshire. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen tomorrow? I would be crazy to try to predict anything in this race. Oh, no, <laughs> That's what you're here for. I, you're well, the expert. <laughs> I do think that, I mean, Sanders won 60% of the primary vote in 2016. So he is starting from the fact that 60% of primary voters have already voted for him. And basically the biggest predictor of if someone will vote for someone is if they voted for them already. So I think that he is starting out with a a, a big advantage there. They know him very well. Um, I think So I think that we should judge predictions against that. And I mean, he will do he will do extremely well. I think that Elizabeth Warren will do extremely well. Much of the New Hampshire media market comes out of Boston. Um, And so they are very familiar with her. They like her. Um, I think the thing that will be a factor that we're not prepared for is that the amount of people that can vote in a New Hampshire primary, it's not just registered Democrats. It's everybody who's not registered as a Republican. So that means people that are undeclared and independents. And undeclared and independents make up about 40% of the elector- of the voting electorate in New Hampshire. So it could end up trending in favor of uh, more conservative candidates. You know, the thing is, is that I'm glad you mentioned that because I have a surprise prediction and you can hold me on this tomorrow, but Klobuchar, you know, she has a pretty decent percentage of independents that support her. I think it's something like 10%, you know, so if that's the case, if you don't have to be aligned with a specific party to vote for a candidate in in the New Hampshire primary, you know, she may make a surprise, you know, um, ranking tomorrow. Absolutely. I'd say anything is possible in this race. (laughs) Anything is possible. Well, anyway, Emily Tish-Sushman, thank you so much for joining me, and we'll see what happens tomorrow. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening. The Electorate is independently created and produced by me, Jen Taylor Skinner. And of course, I'm the host. But I also do all of the editing, the audio, and the graphics. You name it, it's on my plate. So if you enjoyed this episode of The Electorate, please help The Electorate grow by subscribing. Just hit the subscribe button on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Also leave a review for The Electorate on iTunes. Lastly, one final way to help The Electorate is by following The Electorate on social media. That's at Electorate on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep up the good fight.